Worried Writer, helping you to overcome fear, self-doubt and procrastination to get the work done. I'm your host, Sarah Painter, and I'm a novelist and self-confessed worried writer. For show notes, resources and much more, please head to worriedwriter.com. And now, on with the show. Welcome to episode 39 of The Worried Writer. I'm recording this on Friday the 27th of April and it's a lovely sunny day here in Fife. My guest today is James Blatch. James is a co-founder and director of The Self-Publishing Formula with best-selling indie superstar Mark Dawson. We have a really interesting chat about the writing process for a first book and the pressures and benefits of writing a debut as a visible figure within the indie publishing community, and the tips and resources James has found invaluable in getting to this stage. In my writing news this month, I have, I'm afraid, fallen foul of the fear demon. As you know, I've been trying to finish my current work in progress, um, and I was really struggling a few weeks ago. And I kind of didn't realise that it was my old friend, uh, fear of finishing. Because, of course, once I finish the book, that means showing it to people. As is often the way, once I'd identified what was blocking me and I'd recognised the fear, I managed to start making progress again. As always, I want to be really honest with you and share these struggles as they crop up. Um, I certainly have to keep on relearning these things over and over again. On a positive note, I had another cafe writing session um, that was really productive, just like the one that I told you about last month. So it's certainly something that I'm going to continue to incorporate into my writing routine. Okay, on to this month's listener question. This question comes from Maria Smith, one of my lovely new patrons. Actually, this is one of two excellent questions from Maria, and I answered the other one in my second patron-only mini-episode, along with another question from another patron. If you want access to the mid-month audio extra, please do consider signing up to support The Worried Writer on Patreon. Okay, on to Maria's question. She asked, how do you get back into a novel project when you've been away from it for a while and your life and your responsibilities have changed? There are two separate parts to this. Getting back to a novel project after any kind of break can be tricky. I know that whenever I have a break, I'd often feel quite frightened of reading over my old work, um, just in case it's going to be disappointing. Or sometimes it's just having to face the amount of work needed, and in my mind it kind of builds up as an absolutely insurmountable task. Another common fear might be that you are feeling quite separate and maybe bored by the idea, feel that it no longer feels exciting and vital and alive to you. Or you might have left the project at a place where you were stuck, or you were finding it difficult, and so then there's not an obvious way back in. Luckily, whatever the reason for your feelings, the remedy is the same, which is, of course, to just get stuck back in. Um, Things that can help are setting really tiny, easy goals, like just opening the document and reading the first page or two. And then you let yourself stop if you want to and reward yourself for completing the first step. Another idea is to really remind yourself of why you were excited about the project in the past. So just to think about all the cool things or fun ideas or the great characters or the setting, make a list of the things that excited you in the first place and just try and remind yourself of what made you start the book in the first place. 
The second part of your question, the change in life and responsibilities, speaks to a wider issue that we'll need looking at. It's completely normal for responsibilities and life stuff to get in the way sometimes, and we've all experienced or will experience times when writing just has to take a back seat for a while. Sometimes it has to get out of the car entirely. If that's been the case for you, all I want to say really is that don't compound your difficulties by feeling guilty about it. Not only shouldn't you feel guilty about it, but also it's really not going to help as you try to get back into writing. I think you have done the most important thing, which is to recognise that things have changed in your life, and that schedules, techniques or routines which have served you in the past might no longer work. So just go that extra step now and just take the time that you need in order to examine your new routines and responsibilities and to try to be honest about whether you can make some time for writing yet or whether it still has to wait. If you do look at your sort of new routine and you think that you can fit some some writing in and that that feels like a positive step for you and something that you are excited about or something that's going to give you some valuable escape time or headspace, then absolutely give it a go. But very much in the spirit of being kind to yourself and writing because you actively want to do so. If you've been through any tricky or discombobulating uh, life stuff, then you absolutely want writing to be play and escape and relaxation, not work or part of a should do on your list of responsibilities. I really hope that helps, Maria, and good luck. If you've got a question that you would like answered on the show, please do email me, sarah at worriedwriter.com or leave a comment on the show notes at worriedwriter.com. Next, a quick shout out to my new supporters on Patreon. I am overwhelmed by the positive response to my new page and it means the world to me that you are willing to support the show in this way. A huge thank you to Liz Deacon, Marie Madigan, Ursula, Corinne Cunningham, Susan K. Mann, Barbara Beer, Natalie Perry, Jill Ackroyd, Liz Otterson, and Maria Smith. What a bumper crop of patrons. Thank you so much. If you want to join the inner circle of podcast supporters, do head to patreon.com forward slash worriedwriter. I will put a link in the show notes. Also, don't forget, if you want to support the show in other ways, then sharing it with your writer friends or on social media or leaving a rating on your podcast app are all brilliant and truly helpful. Just a very quick shout out to some lovely folk on Twitter. Joanne Mallory, who is at WriterGal, made me smile with this tweet. 15 minutes in the car by myself to listen to some of this month's Sarah Painter podcast. Maybe I'll drive slower. Thank you, Joanne. Ange Cairns, who's at Angie Power, and the lovely Phoebe Morgan, who is at Phoebe underscore A underscore Morgan. Thank you so much for listening, and now onto the interview section of the show. My guest today is James Blatch. James is a co-founder and director of The Self-Publishing Formula, with best-selling indie superstar Mark Dawson. SPF offers fantastic training courses for authors on advertising, self-publishing and book cover design, as well as a brilliant weekly podcast and free ebooks and resources. James is also an author and is currently working on his debut novel, The Last Flight. Welcome to the show, James, and thank you so much for joining me. 
Thank you, Sarah. I'm really delighted to be here. And I'm blushing slightly in the introduction. Thank you so much for your, your kind words about SPF. Well, continue to blush a bit more because I have to do my fangirl bit um, just to say a personal thank you to you and, of course, uh, hopefully pass on to Mark for the fabulous self-publishing 101 and ads for authors courses. Um, I actually listened to your voice so much during the tech library section of the 101 course that I kind of feel as if I know you. Yeah, I've been in your ear. It's quite an intimate <laughs> yes. experience, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it is. Um, but I did find the course so fantastically useful when I was publishing my nonfiction book. Um, so what led you and Mark to setting up SPF? It was it, For me, it was... Uh, it was coincidence, a bit of serendipity, I suppose. And coincidence is usually the beginning of most businesses. But I already had a business in video production. So I'd worked for somebody all my life since about the age of 19. I walked into a job that I hated. I worked in computing for eight years, which paid quite well, but I absolutely hated it. I always wanted to work for the BBC or be a hovercraft pilot, but a hovercraft pilot kind of went by the wayside. Um, but I started working evenings, weekends, got myself into the BBC and had a fantastic career there. Took a career break because um, quite intense uh, working at the Beeb, quite competitive as well. And I just had children and was just starting to be sent abroad more often to the Middle East. And for the first, having wanted to be the kind of the case, I worked with Kate AD a couple of times and wanting to be that kind of person up until that point. Suddenly you've got children and they're, um, it was really brutal in the Middle East at that time. And I was starting to, I, I realized I was starting to have second thoughts about it. So this opportunity came up to work at the BBFC as a film examiner. Uh, the same as the MPAA in the States, are basically sitting there watching films all day and giving them certificates and doing that as a break from the BBC. And I snapped that up, loved it so much that I quit the Beeb and stayed at the BBFC and worked alongside a guy called Mark Dawson. Mm -hmm. And Mark and I used to sit there watching whatever Tarantino films or hours of WWE wrestling uh, together, giving them certificates. Uh, it's not a job you do forever, that. Um, it is brilliant, but... Seven years was enough for me, and I took a redundancy package and started a video production business. And that's when I suppose for the first time in my life, instead of working for somebody else, working for myself, I started to understand a bit more about business. And I realized that the type of business that many, most people are in, which is where you services, where you do a job and then you put in an invoice – are limited in their scalability. So you basically, you can do as much as you can do personally. You could employ other people, but that gets very complicated and very pressured because you've got to really get a, a lot of work in all the time to pay salaries. And so a, a third colleague, John Dyer, he and I were working together. In fact, so John, Mark, and I all worked at the BBFC. John and I started the video production business. We started casting around for something that was a bit more scalable, where we could do some work early on and then scale it up. And online courses was, was definitely something we were looking at. We started to get involved with one um, other group, but very quickly thought that wasn't going to work. And then just got this magic phone call where my, I literally, I can remember the day I was in the front of my house. I'm now in my garden. Like you, Sarah, I have an office in my garden now. But I was in the front of my house and Mark Dawson called and he said, oh, hi, Joe, it's Mark. Um, I'm thinking about doing an online course to help authors do what I do, because I think this is quite an exciting area. So could you do the video side of it? And I said to him, it's funny you should ask that. <laughs> and uh, I said, wow. I'll tell you what, why don't we have a little coffee in London? So we met John, Mark and I sat down at the BFI at British Film Institute Cinema on South Bank, uh, a nice cafe there, had a cappuccino, sketched out a company formation, 
uh, on a Word document, which I've still got, like a back of the modern equivalent of back of an envelope. And I loved what Mark said. So Mark's story was incredible. I mean, this is somebody who did what you did, Sarah, uh, you know, got published traditionally, had a very dispiriting experience like that, probably thought that his childhood dream of being a writer was gone. And then a friend started selling ebooks in about 2011, another colleague actually at the BBFC. And Mark's quite competitive as well. And he, when he sees someone doing that, he thinks, well, I can do that. I can do it better. And he can. And he, he really drilled down into it. And within a couple of years, he was, he, the income from his books was outstripping his salary from London. And it was clear that he wasn't going to be schlepping into London on the train any longer. And he was really excited about this. And he felt a, a bit of a sense of, um, campaigningness about this because he felt that authors were being badly served by the traditional industry. And he's not completely anti-trad, we should say. He is still traditionally published and there's a place for both. But he wanted, he really saw this of unlocking this for for everyday authors, people like me who had a kind of book gathering dust in the in the drawer, as coincidentally I did. And uh, I loved that whole philosophy and I have not regretted a moment of saying yes to Mark and getting involved in this because it's the most wonderful community to be involved in. Um, and that's, sorry, that was a long answer to no, like, no, how not SBF at started. Not at all. And it just, it's so lovely to hear the origin story. Um, and I'm so glad it was such a perfect, perfect timing for you and a confluence of your, of your interests as well. I mean, as you said, you had a book in a drawer, so writing was obviously on your radar. Um, yeah. as well so that's great um, and I completely agree with you the um, the community of SPF is fantastic um, and it has been massively successful which is not really a surprise because it's such high quality content um, and such a lot of it so which kind of leads me to my next question which is how on earth do you manage your own writing alongside what must be more than a full-time job? Yeah, it is. It is definitely a struggle. Um, and I, the way it's worked out now, so Mark does, uh, he's the real Facebook ads guru is what we teach was also what he's good at and social media ads drive our SPF business as they do his own writing business. His own writing business is colossally busy at the moment as well. He's been really producing a lot. He's moved into uh, KU recently, uh, which he's, he's blogging about. Um, so I, I tend to run the operations so day to day. So for instance, this morning, the first sort of half an hour of my day is at the laptop before breakfast on the table, making sure that everything's okay from overnight and doing a few things to complicated things to do with mailing lists to make sure we're not going to email anyone who's unsubscribed and things like that. And then I get into today where I'm going to be editing um, together a course, Facebook Live for Authors, which we're adding to the 101 course next week. So that's in the final stages of editing. So I do have a big workload. Um, I also work from home in the office garden. So I do definitely try and maintain a family balance as well. But somewhere in there, I'm going to have to find more time to write my book. So I'm visiting it occasionally at the moment. LBF is always a good boost for me because I, you know, I know... <laughs> As soon as I get there, I feel like I should hand a card out to explain where my I am with my book because I get asked it by everyone who comes up to me to get a T-shirt. <laughs> and we, we formulated an answer the night before, which was I'm flirting with the idea of being unpublished as being the new trendy area of uh, publishing <laughs> to not publish at all. Um, that didn't really work. And I actually, after a couple of beers, ended up shaking on a deal with Sasha Black, who's uh, one of our authors, actually authors under a name, Nico... De Coinsberg, I think is 
think I'm saying that correctly. Um, and Sasha, uh, well, that's her real name, Sasha Black, I think is her author name. And, and Sasha had been on my case a year ago about the book and then picked it up again. And she said, look, you need a deadline. So why don't we say by this time next year, when we meet, you've published. Mm. And there's a photograph of the handshake somewhere. So I think that's a good thing for me to have now mm. that um so i mean i i wrote this book and nanorimo back in 2011 mm-hmm. 10 11 rewrote it because by the end of it of course it was completely different from the beginning is my first ever time i've write, written it wrote it so that second rewrite was much shorter i stripped away a lot of the stuff it was only fifty thousand words by the end of that second rewrite gave it to an editor and Jenny said lots of nice things about the characters and the plot and the story, but said you do things too quickly. You've, you've, you've misunderstood the page turner concept, which is it's people wanting to know your characters and be on that journey rather than get to the end result. You you, you, you mm-hmm. keep getting to the end result of what they're trying to do. And so, so I, so I understood what she said, what she was saying straight away. And I got involved. Uh, I started reading the story grid by Sean Coy, which I really liked. Mm-hmm. And so I was rewriting it a third time. And that's when I really became unstuck because I find it really difficult to rewrite what I've written. I find it much easier to start again each time. And so I started again, so it's like the fourth time, I started again with it, and I, I struggled with that a little bit, and I realized what I needed to do, having gone through this process, and thought a lot about it, is to plot in a lot more detail. Uh, I always thought I was going to be a bit of a pantser, but I'm clearly not, I'm going to have to plot, and I've started that, I'm, I'm well into that process now, a single sentence, then a paragraph, then 500 words, then seven and a half, eight thousand words, mm-hmm. and that's where I am now, and that's where I can see there are this brilliant process because I can now know I'm not going to the scene by scene yet, which is the next stage because there are problems at the seven and a half thousand word stage. I need to iron them out, then move on, and then I'll be writing. And I think the writing bit will be the easier and more pleasurable bit once I've got that mm-hmm. done. I'm using something called the Novel Factory, by the way, okay, which I have no connection with except somebody recommended it, and it's an online service. I think it's about seven pounds a month. Uh, view books online the only slight downside is I opened my, my laptop on a flight last week thinking I'll have an hour to do the job but of course it's online uh, I looked uh-huh. at my British Airways don't yet have Wi-Fi so <laughs> I, that was that but uh, there's obviously ways around that but um I'd really recommend it for plotting so far I've okay. loved it well, I'm I'm definitely not a plotter, as regular listeners know, and I've spent the last three years of this podcast whinging about that fact and asking for tips, and I've kind of come to the realisation that I have to really just embrace the way that I do it and accept my process. <laughs> um, so all I was going to say on that, you, um, you know, you were saying about how some of your editor feedback was maybe be, just being a wee bit too brief. Um, just to say that I was a journalist in my former life, and I underwrite chronically. Yeah. Um, every editorial comment I get is, you need more here, more of this. This is great, but more. I'm chronically concise. Um, so just to empathise, really, and to also yeah. just say that it's a very common thing. Um, well, I think particularly for ex-journalists. Yes, I mean, I was I, a television news journalist. We had 90 seconds, maybe two minutes if you're lucky. And if it was a big feature, you got 2.30. And then you got, you know, scowls and looks from the other journalists. How could you get 2.30? So 90 seconds, you'd go to a complex story. It might be Arsene Wenger, who's just announced he's retiring from Arsenal. I could typically be sent to the Emirates Stadium to cover that story. 90 seconds to sum up a 20-year career so you write very succinctly, you uh-huh. use your pictures to tell the story, you have to assume some knowledge here and there and make sure that you, you cover where you don't. And that is an art 
that gets drilled into you and to come away from that Mm -hmm. and then sit there and flesh everything out and let mm-hmm. it breathe is is a big transition it I is it and is. i think that works against me um i think well uh yes in one way but another way to look at it perhaps is that rather than writing it i mean i realize that you've just been discussing um having found a new process so i'm not not raining on that but um one way to look at it perhaps is that you are kind of doing an outline a very meaty outline when you do your first draft or two yeah. and because what i do now is i just accept that that my first draft will be ridiculously small. Um, and I go in and I just add every time. Some people go in and they cut with each rewrite and I save a new version and then I just layer in. You know, I add and add and add with each one so it grows and grows and grows. That's um, so anyway, that's just that's just how I look at it, which um, yeah. I don't know if that will be helpful at all or not, but um, it's good that you found a new a new path to follow at the moment because it's hard when you get stuck. Yes, yeah, no, I don't, I don't feel stuck now. I feel oh, I'm so glad. Time, time, impoverished, impoverished. Is that yeah. word? But, um, but I, I need to do something about that. Mm. And uh, you know, I, it's up to me. I think to be proactive. And Mark's fully supportive. If I say to Mark, right, Wednesday mornings from now on, don't bother me. I'm writing. He would support that. So I just need to be proactive and, and do the things I need to do to make sure that Wednesday mornings are clear. Schedule that in. Uh huh. Um, so I was going to ask you if you have any other tips for. There are lots of people in the same boat or a similar boat at least who are working full time trying to fit in their writing. So scheduling time, I assume, would be a tip. Is there anything else that you have found useful? Well, the old whiteboard. I mean, I live and die by whiteboards. Um, and I think there's a lot of work being done on the psychology of writing things down and crossing them off. And when I'm writing, I use a word count target and it goes onto the whiteboard and it gets crossed off. And if it doesn't get crossed off, a little piece of me dies inside. So <laughs> I have to cross it off and I feel good. A little bit, you know, endorphins rise mm-hmm. up. So that's a very simple thing. And I, this is really, you know, I, so we had London Book Fair last week and uh, I had lots of chats with authors uh, about this sort of thing. And you do hear lots of different ways of doing it. And lots of people will get up at five o'clock in the morning. I mean, a surprising number of people will get up at five o'clock in the morning. And I spoke to one guy who's still getting up at five o'clock in the morning, despite the fact he quit his job six months ago because he's been successful with selling books. But he just was in that habit. It's quiet in the house. No one else is up. And he gets and by, you know, between five and seven when and everyone else gets up, you've done quite a lot of work and you can relax. With the so I can see the attraction for that. I have to say I'm a night owl more than an early bird. So mm. it, that's not going to be for me, but it did underline that really whatever you feel works for you and can become routine. I think habits a good thing to get into. Isn't it? You call it habit rather than routine. So it's a bit like exercise, isn't it? With all the best intentions in the world until it becomes habit that you just habit. You, you want to go out there on your bike, whatever, every day, and you want to sit there and, and write, uh, I think that's where I need to get to. I need to start scheduling it and then let it become a part of the uh, of the routine. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that sounds like a really good plan and a good tip for um, anyone who's in the same boat. Um, I have been, as I say, I'm an avid listener of the podcast and a fan, and I've been following your story um, as a debut novelist. And if I'd been at LBF, I would have been one of those many people saying, so how's the book going? Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, actually, I might not have done because I've also been kind of mother hen, kind of worrying about you a wee bit, because the idea of writing your very first novel, which is a learning curve, it's how you learn how to write. I mean, it took me ages to write my first novel. Um, but doing that out, as it were, in public a wee bit, I just wondered how, whether you found that 
has it been motivating for you or has that extra pressure just been a factor in making it more hard you know making it more difficult i think the only the only way that plays negatively is the closer i get to actually publication mm-hmm. to publish pub, for people reading it that's the bit that worries me is that <clears throat> it's not good enough people will read and say well what was the fuss about this guy can't write and that i think is a normal kind of self-doubt so i'm aware enough now to know that it's a first draft it's it's and it's not too I mean, mark's seen bits and pieces and he says you can write he said to me you can write can i get the structure together and make it an interesting read is a different question um but that's the only way that's been negative it's been largely positive and it's funny you say <clears throat> it took you a while to write your first book because what typically happens in those conversations is that somebody gives me grief to start off with about it. it says come on you know blatch where's this book we're all waiting for it and then they say 30 seconds later it took me 12 years to write my first novel <laughs> i think well actually i'm only about four years into this so three years into it so um still not doing too badly um and yeah and, and then you get a lot of sympathy uh, about it but but general encouragement so i'm finding it fine i'm big enough and ugly enough to cope with the kind of you know the the, the bit of glare that there is on me for that and i used to work in television news so you need to get a comment every time you came off air from someone telling you wearing the wrong clothes or something so i'm you know i'm I'm fine about that really i'm using it positively oh that's good that's the thing i mean accountability is a really good tip you know for people so it just seemed like you are doing accountability to the max (laughs) and as i say on a first book i just think that's quite a lot of added pressure so good for you for carrying on um with it and i'm obviously very excited when the book does arrive um looking forward to that now the title of this podcast is the worried writer so i'm not going to leave it there i'm afraid i'm going to delve further into any creative struggles that you have had or still struggle with and i'm just wondering do you ever suffer from block or is there a part of the writing process that you find most difficult yeah, I mean, I, I think as I go through this plotting now, that's obviously where my mind is at at the moment. It is it, it is that conceal and reveal side of things. So obviously I've got, I have my end point worked out and I have my beginning worked out really clearly. And they're the best parts of the book. I, the first and last chapters are great. <laughs> <laughs> I do struggle a bit with at what point does your character know because it's it's very difficult again going back to journalism where you are telling this story succinctly and quickly and getting stuff out there whereas i need probably it said said over eight days i probably need my main character to be completely innocent and going down the wrong direction along with everybody else for two and a half three days and i keep putting i keep having conversation tips that allude to the fact things are going wrong and i'm and my editor points out well you don't really want to do that at this stage because you want it to be a surprise when the penny drops and and although there's also a dan brown type thing and jenny power who's the editor who i've been using who's on the podcast a couple of times is brilliant and although lots of people are sniffy about dan brown she's a huge fan of the way he writes because she says he very cleverly makes sure the reader's ahead of him the readers work things out two or three pages ahead. And there's a trick to that. So that, you have to take your ego out of it because you always want you want to be the storyteller, right? If you worked in journalism, you may have the same thing I had as a kid. I was always writing a little story. And even if it was, I'd, I'd deliver the news. I remember when the Falklands War was on. That's how old I am, Sarah. Mm-hmm. I, remember the Falklands, I remember my parents were out at the pub that night 
and they came back and I couldn't wait to tell them HMS Sheffield had been sunk. It was a big thing. It was a big piece of news. And that's what I want to do, right? I want to tell people what's happening. Well, that's not what you do in a novel. You you live and breathe with people and you see them changing. And then there's this moment where things aren't what they seem to be. I'm struggling with that. Mm-hmm. I keep giving it away. So that's why the plotting is <laughs> it's important. So I think I'm, I'm learning craft. I'm learning the craft. And it's not obvious, is it? You yeah. might think it is. It might look easy from the outside. It's not. It needs to be learned like like a sport you need you know you can't just walk get a golf club in your hand hit a golf ball you kind of need to be taught some technique that doesn't feel right at first I think that's a good analogy oh absolutely and it definitely you know again to be reassuring as lots of people no doubt have said to you you know your first book it does take the longest because you are learning these craft things you're learning how a novel works um but then it also just you just carry on learning which is what i love so much about writing is that you know you continue to realize what you don't know <laughs> yeah. um which is great um assuming that you're going to carry on writing of course assuming that writing this hasn't put you off forever no no Dave, i'm really i really enjoyed the writing when i get to sit and write i'm loving it Oh, I'm so glad. And um, you've mentioned a couple of resources already, um, the Story Grid, um, and I think some novel software that you mentioned earlier, The sorry, the online. Yeah. Um, do you have any other books or articles um, or resources that you have found particularly helpful in either writing craft or in getting your mindset into writing productivity, I suppose? Well, I'm pretty lucky in my position doing the podcast. I do all the interviews. So every week I learn something and I have a, a myriad, too many to to mention really of, of people who I've thought that's been a really helpful interview to have. Um, I'm terrible on names uh, at the moment. So I did a very good interview on revising with a woman who has a series of courses actually on, on revision and I've started to do one of her courses. I should really look look up her name on her email it too if you want to put it Fantastic. in the show notes. I will put that in the show notes, but I think yeah. you're absolutely right. We'll simply direct people to SPF because there is such a wealth of tips and advice there. Well, like you're driving this this interview, I think, to be of use to people. That's what we do as well. Uh, every interview, we want it to be useful. We, we realize people's time is precious. And I know that more than anybody else. So we make sure that's the case. So hopefully the podcast interviews are and the more recent ones, definitely. Um, the uh, other aspects, I mentioned Sean Coy in the Novel Factory, which I'm really enjoying to help me plot. Um, there's the bestseller experiment which is a uk uh you probably know those guys a uk based uh, they've got a good twitter feed as well as podcast and i like them as well I like the kind of relaxed approach they're taking to doing it um so yeah i mean there's probably too many to mention i'm a little bit overwhelmed and i have to be careful which which ones i go down to any great detail just because i've got the time but but they're the main ones for me i'm so glad you said that about um being overwhelmed is because it absolutely is something i struggle with sometimes it's the flip side of this golden age that we are living in. Yeah. And I'm so grateful for it. I'm certainly not complaining. But there very much is that point when you think, okay, I have to stop consuming advice or I need to just do the, I need to just do the writing now. <laughs> I need to switch my focus a wee bit. Um, and speaking of the kind of external and internal, um, you know, obviously, that there is so much more to being an author than just writing the book. And I was wondering how you feel about about publication, about being, the book being out there, and about the promotion and marketing side? Well, not surprisingly, I can't wait to get going on that <laughs> bit. I mean, I do, uh, I work alongside Mark closely and uh, see what he does. I do a lot of the work for SPF. I run our YouTube 
uh, ads campaign, our AdWords campaigns. Uh, I've been and played with and used Twitter ads and now given up on them because they don't work. Um, and we're just about to start getting into Pinterest and Instagram and all of that stuff. And I've got a great cover already done because we did that for part of 101. So there's a cover for the book already, although I'm pretty certain I'm going to change the title. Um, oh, really? Yeah, yeah. I've been mulling the title uh, a lot over recent, um, well, probably over the last year or so, and actually had a bit of an epiphany during a conversation at LBF last week. So I think I might change the title to Traitor, uh, which is a darker, and uh, I think it sums up the book a little bit better when this this, very, very nice guy who is a close friend to a younger pilot dies in a crash, and it turns out he was selling secrets. At least that's what I think. So traitors, and I think with the with this cover that Stuart Bates has done for me, I think that will work well. So I, that might change four more times before the book is published, but I'll let you know, Sarah. Well, you know you've got a cracking <laughs> cover at least. I mean, that's yeah, fantastic. fantastic. Yeah, so love the cover. I've got a blurb done already. Um, so Brian's <laughs> done the blurb uh, for me again. We did that for 101. So I've got a lot of the fundamentals in place. I've got a lot of the assets needed to market. Um, so that bit I'm looking forward Would to. Would it be fair to say then that, that the obstacle for you is setting your publication date and, you know, hitting the launch button? Yeah, because absolutely. you know so much. You're in this business. You work closely with a ridiculously successful author. You know you have you have all of this excellent input, but I can I can imagine that it might make it that bit harder to release. Yeah. Um, what how, what are you going to do to overcome yeah. that understandable well, perfectionism that you probably? I, I've given myself this. I mean, uh, I don't think Sasha will take me to court over it but uh, we have had this handshake in a pub in london uh, that it'd be published this time next year and so that really means that the book needs to be ready in the autumn into mm. its editing rounds um so uh i think that's what i'm gonna i'm gonna work on so i'd give myself a deadline i mean that's another game trying to um, leverage the positive side of being a journalist in the past was we lived by deadlines Absolutely. Um, and television in particular and there was a Famously, I won't name her for obvious reasons, but there was a very good investigative journalist who I worked closely with who was terribly disorganized and would tear in. We had a 6.30 live transmission program. The deadline really was kind of 5, 5.30, but you, you could you could play it out live at 6, you know, when it was due. And she would routinely tear in late without everything and miss her slot. And as people used to say, you could be the best journalist in the world. There's no <laughs> point if you miss your slot. So oh, deadlines were drilled into me um, from that uh, uh-huh. that experience. So I'm going to try and leverage like that, uh, that that reliance on deadlines and um, and try and live up to that. So and here I am saying it publicly as I well. I was just going to so say I realised I bullied you into no, you using this. So no, no, no. you have now said on the worried writer that this time next <laughs> yeah. year I'm going to be able to order my copy of the last. Oh gosh, but I'm totally with you on deadlines. And um, I was in magazines, but it was that monthly deadline that the idea of missing a print deadline was, well, it's completely inconceivable. It just was not an option. So I have the same thing with deadlines. So it's quite useful, isn't it? Yeah. It's Although, of course, deadlines in the book world, the traditional world, they are Oh, my goodness, they're so, so different. They are so different. different. Yeah. Uh-huh. That, and also being Douglas, self-employed, you have to kind of, you have to make yourself believe that it's a real deadline. 
Yes, yeah. Which I'm quite good at with business side of things. I'm pretty organised at that. The whiteboard is king, of course, of that. So, <laughs> yes, I love the Douglas Adams quotas. I love deadlines. I like the whooshing sound they make as they go past. Yes. <laughs> uh, so that's deadlines in the traditional publishing world. So um, I realise that we're starting to knock on time. So I'd love to hear more about about your book, if you'd be happy to talk about it, just to give people um, a wee taste. Yes, yeah. So uh, it's it, so NaNoWriMo, or Rymo, however you want to say it. Um, I didn't know anything about it. And I sat there literally on November the 1st at the BBFC. This was, a, I think I probably had a very slow day of viewing of uh, something that didn't require. Like sometimes you can get like Heidi. Do you remember the Austrian uh, little girl TV series? That came in for a re-release on DVD one day, I remember. And it was about eight hours and I was given it. So I had two days of watching Heidi unlikely that big issues were going to come up in it but you obviously so uh, you had to stop yourself falling asleep basically um and anyway this is the first of november and a friend uh, one of my colleagues at the bbfc i was looking on twitter and, and her husband said oh i'm going to do this so to stave off mental torpor was exactly his tweet i clicked on the link read the basis of nanowrimo didn't go any further into site opened up a word document and started writing this book and this book i think had been in my head for a while and it was basically, so my father was an RAF test pilot in the 1960s based at RAF Boscombe Down in Wiltshire. And he was there for six years. And um, he lived in this environment where accidents were common. They went to a lot of funerals. Uh, it was an incredible difference to today where an RAF crash, which unfortunately we have had a fatality very recently, but it made major news when in his day you would have 100 people a year would die in air accidents and they barely would blink. And there's a lot of secrecy around it as well. Um, so I'd always kind of fascinated with that era because it was my father who had stopped flying by the time I was uh, growing up. So I never saw him as a pilot, but became, as you get older, more interested in your parents' lives. And there's black and white photographs of my mum and him at balls in the 60s. So that whole era was fascinating to me. And I wanted to write a book that started with one of these crashes. And uh, I, I shouldn't say for, I won't say the next sentence for legal reasons, but it starts with a crash that I've invented, um, where uh, the people in the back of the aircraft, it was a Vulcan bomber, which is this thing. You can you still see me? I because can, Because I know yes. my pictures disappeared here. But oh. anyway. So that's a Vulcan bomber behind. Uh-huh. Um, in fact, that is one of the ones my father flew with that number on the back. So why I bought that picture, I saw it at an air show and I said, that's one of my dad's. Um, it crashes. The guys in the back can't get out because they don't have ejection seats, which they didn't. And the two pilots did have ejection seats and they get out. One of the guys in the back is a very close friend with the youngish, like 28 year old pilot in the front. And he's distraught because he feels partly responsible. His friends died and the, you know, they know his wife very well. They socialize a lot together. And then within the 24 hours after the crash, it turns out that the guy in the back, his friend, was stealing secrets. I mean, was offload, was taking the secret details of this new uh, low-level flying system out of the base against all rules. They weren't even sure Harry was getting the papers out there, but he was. He was stockpiling them, and it looked very obvious that he was going to uh, be selling these which happened in the 1960s there was a lot of money on offer from the soviet union or even other manufacturers americans in particular weren't um uh, well they're a little bit predisposed to uh, offering some money to buy a shortcut into technology um but of course things aren't exactly as they seem um but it takes that's that 
point. So that's where that's the little plot thing I'm getting to now, where's how long he it takes him to start realizing that things might not be he might not be um, responsible for the crash. He his friend might not be a traitor. And the only way he can assuage himself from the guilt he feels from the crash, his driving motivation in this is to prove his his friend innocent. But his friend might not be innocent, I should say. Mm-hmm. So that's that's basically the story. 1966, June 1966, set over eight days. So it basically starts with the crash and finishes with uh, the the day of the funeral mm-hmm. um, for the for the guys who died um, in a made up base in Wiltshire called. REF West Porton, which for legal reasons is not Boscombe Down, because that's another thing that's happened as a result of uh, being on the podcast. We had a lawyer on, and I got to ask him a load of questions, and he, I use obviously my book as an example. So he he made the point very quickly that I should have thought of as a journalist as well with our legal training is that there was a station commander of REF Boscombe Down uh. in 1966. He might still be alive, and even though I don't talk about the station commander, or if I do, I give him another name, that doesn't really matter because if you're saying that this happened on his watch, uh-huh. uh, he was quite responsible. So he said, just make up a station that's very closely related to it, but not it. So that was a nice little legal tip for me. I was going to say that so was well worth having, wasn't it, that tip? Yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't think anyone would have taken it seriously. Hopefully they'll like, like reading about the um, the intrigue of Boscombe Down. Oh, the fewer things that you have to wake up at four o'clock in the morning and fret about, <laughs> the better is the way I yeah. look at these things. Um, but that book, it just, it really does sound genuinely absolutely fascinating. I'm really really looking forward to reading it. It's definitely my kind of thing. Um, so I am cheering you on. <laughs> um, and finally, are there any questions? Um, not any questions, that's not the word. Um, is there anything that you've learned while writing this first book that you will carry forward to your next project? See, I'm already pushing you, your next book, yes. your next book. Yeah, well, I don't, I don't know the answer to that one yet because mm. I'm intrigued by the journey that I've had in terms of of the writing process and uh, I've got to this point of, of plotting which I'm enjoying but I'm enjoying it because I've got myself in a bit of a pickle in terms mm. of where I was before and struggling to rewrite it as a book mm. so needing to plot again what I'm interested to know and I've already got an idea for for the next book is when I come to start that whether I will go straight to that plotting stage or whether I'll do the same I think I'll just mm. follow my instincts on that mm. I might just want to write the book like you do Sarah and call that a first draft then plot it and then write uh-huh. it again or hopefully it will be a simpler process based on this but I don't it's interesting to me because I don't know the answer to that and I haven't mm. deliberately mm. haven't really thought that far ahead mm. at this stage so now I definitely do my um my plotting or my structuring or however you want to call it after my messy so my first draft is so bad I call it a zero draft because okay. it doesn't deserve the term first <laughs> um, and then I apply the structure in the revision process then I will look at things like the rising tension and the acts of the you know, the inciting incident and the, the turning points and the, the middle. Um, but, you know, you were saying about how the middle, you know, you've got a bang up beginning and a great ending. Um, and it's just so annoying that you need a middle of the book. So it's yes. just frustrating. Isn't that frustrating? But um, I was just going to say, I read a really good book called, um, oh gosh, I want to say The Mirror Moment, James Scott Bell. It's, it's a short read. And um, with my last book, I was really struggling. Well, I, I was really struggling with the ending which turned out to be because I messed up the middle. Um, and the mirror moment, that really helped me because it's, you know, again, the central, you know, you were saying at what point does your main character realise something so major? And usually the middle 
is like the big switch turning point. Yeah. So that might be the yeah. The, you know, <laughs> pick the middle of it and go right. That's, that's where that's, it's going to be. I mean, that's a really good tip, and that probably should be. And then things mm-hmm. will have to move quite quickly for me in the second half. But I think that's no bad thing for it picking up pace. It should, yeah, it should pick up pace. That makes sense. And I think it's been a really um, sounds almost a silly thing to learn, but um, I. I Right at the beginning, I thought this has got to the story has to change. I sort of heard one or two bits and pieces of, of people like James Patterson saying that, that that on every page you have to have a reason to know what's going to happen next. But that's not so. I got I took that too literally. Mm. I literally was thinking the story has to go bang, 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 mm. and I had them breaking into the base at night, and it became silly just because I needed more action and mm. and actually what I need to have is just this this enjoyable scene setting there's a big crash at the beginning and there's that fallout from that and the change in character for this guy so there's enough going on that's enough to reason hopefully to turn the page and want to be with this person and find out what happens it doesn't need to be someone knocking at the door and saying have you seen this you know it's like <laughs> what was that you know that's so i'm moving away from that literal reason uh-huh. to turn the page and thinking more about what do i enjoy when i'm reading a book and I'm terrible at the moment. I'm reading lots of nonfiction. I should be reading fiction books similar to mine, but I can't stop reading nonfiction. I'm going to move back to fiction. But when I read fiction, what is it that I enjoy about it? And it is more being with the person, isn't it? And getting to know them and going off with them into an unknown mm-hmm. situation. And so I should be more relaxed that that's mm-hmm. what people enjoy reading and not having to have an Arnold Schwarzenegger moment on mm-hmm. every other Uh And if you're working towards, say, a big switch in the middle, for example, where everything that your character thought they knew, you know, it really gets turned, which it sounds like you already know what that should be. And and that's fantastic. And you can sort of be building up like how how will that how can you make your reader really care and be really shocked by that switch so that they feel for your character? Yes. I mean, like that can be like your focus. Yes. In terms of. And then you're yeah. writing from that bit to the climax. And it's just a wee bit easier because otherwise you just, well, I don't know about how you feel about it, but I find it really difficult. I've got that kind of woolly middle. Yeah. I'm kind of, you know, it can almost feel like just one thing after another there. So, yeah, but that's great. You've already, you already know your big switch. It is. I'm now so already great. thinking, <laughs> applying some of that to to the, to it now. I have to make some notes immediately. For this <laughs> no, well, that's wonderful. I'm very aware that I'm taking up your time and that you are a very busy man. So thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. And uh, where, you- where can listeners find out about you and your books? So me and my books is jamesblatch.com. Simple as that. And lucky there aren't too many James Blatches in the world. Probably not too many Sarah Painters, are there? You've yep. got sarahpainter.com, haven't you? So, um, so Mark Dawson didn't get markdawson.com. He's markjdawson, I think, .com. Um, so jamesblatch.com, and you can sign up to my mailing list there. And I've got a, I've quite enjoyed writing because obviously we do, this is what we teach, a mailing list sort of onboarding. And I've quite enjoyed writing the, um, I'm going to add a new email soon. Actually, I had a chat with a, a chap near you. Not too far from Fife, I think, actually. Anyway, I can't exactly remember, but he's up in Scotland, and he flew with my father in the 1960s. And my father is the least demonstrative person you'll ever meet in your life. So if you ask him, what was it like, he was all right. <laughs> then there'll be this long period of silence. So what was the mess room? Yeah. Did you go drinking? Yes, a bit. That'll be it. So that's my dad. So I, I said, there's something else I could talk to. So he gave me the name of his, um, his navigator who's i mean my dad's 87 now his navigator's a year or two younger but they're they're elderly men now up in scotland i had the most 
brilliant conversation with him on the phone uh, after Christmas. And I said, what was the drinking like? And he said, oh, you've no idea. He said it got so bad. <laughs> Station commander said, I'm going to close the mess at lunchtime if if we don't, if we need to stop because people were going, they were starting at lunchtime. They were flying in the afternoon. He told me things I'd, I had my jaw, jaw dropped at that in the bombers, these bombers, halfway through their mission, they would go down below 10,000 feet so they could turn the oxygen off so they could all have a smoke. They would have smoke, <laughs> have cigarettes, turn the oxygen back on, go back up to wow. 20,000 feet. Trust stuff my dad must have done. When I mentioned this to my dad, he goes, oh, yes, they, we did that. But, you know, some people like telling the story, some people don't. And um, <laughs> so uh, I don't know why I started this, but, yeah, I had a fantastic <laughs> conversation with him about it. So I've enjoyed doing the emails that have told a bit of those stories, mm-hmm. how I found out bits and pieces from talking to people. And one of the community had a photograph that my dad took from a, a Canberra or something, I think. Um, and I've always wondered where it was in Britain. And somebody on my mailing list said, I know somebody who's a test pilot at Boscombe Down, emailed it to him and got the answer straight back. He said, yeah, we still fly down that route today. And that is, it was near Bristol, um, that bit. So that's all, you'll get those emails and they're, they're quite enjoyable in their own right. Even if there isn't a book at the end of it at the moment. There will be a book at the end of it. <laughs> there will be. There will be. <laughs> Fantastic. And um, I will also put a link in the show notes to, um, you're on Twitter, aren't you? And oh, yes, at James Blatch. And I got that. Fantastic. And I will also put a link to the SPF uh, podcast courses website and so on. Uh, Brilliant. And I'll send you the revising. Uh, I really apologize <laughs> for getting her name, but um, she's very, very good about the revision process. And I'd recommend. Brilliant. Thank you. I will put those in the show notes. But thank you again for your time. It's been so nice to speak to you. Thank you, Sarah. It's been brilliant. Thanks for listening today. For show notes and links, head to worriedwriter.com. If you'd like to connect, find me on Twitter at Sarah R. Painter or use the hashtag worriedwriter. See you next time.